All right, students, last time we were here, we talked about pride, and we talked about the proud penitents, but we didn't get quite through all of Canto 12. So we talked about the punishments, and something I want you to keep in mind during the lecture today and just during the Purgatorio in general are the representations of art on each of the seven terraces of Purgatory. Specifically, I want you to think about the medium of the art. In the proud, or amongst the proud, the proud penitents had to see examples of humility carved into rock above them, which then raised their perspective. They had to look up to them in the same way that they looked down on them in life, or looked down on others in life. Well, then they find themselves looking at carvings beneath their feet, those of the proud. And so those who are proud are now fallen beneath the feet of those who were once proud, or those who were once proud are, hmm, how should I say this? Uh, 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 those who held themselves above are now trampled below those that they would have held themselves above or believed themselves to be greater than, essentially showing that are the figures of pride as good as they thought they were? No, no. They are uh, balancing their perspective by now enduring that which they refuse to endure in life. And so it's very interesting. We talked about the examples of humility, of Mary in the Annunciation, of King David, dancing naked in front of a fire, and of Emperor Trajan doing the will of a, uh, a peasant woman who was a widow rather than going on his campaign. Well, here are now the examples of uh, the vice that we see beneath our feet as we are bent underneath the weight of a rock. And well, these are some big examples. I'll tell you just a little bit about a few of them. I think there are 13 in total. And just something to keep in mind there is there are 13 examples of pride, and there are three examples of humility. What is being said there? Well, at the very least, mathematically, it seems as if there's a lot more pride than there is humility. Not only in the real world, but also in literature as well. Some interesting, meaningful looks being shared multiple times back there I'll have to ask about later. And so, here are some of the examples. Lucifer and Briarius. Lucifer is, of course, for the Christian faith and those uh, during Dante's time in the Middle Ages in Italian, or Italy, not called Italy at that time, of course, would have known well about Lucifer. He is considered a figure of pride. Why pride? Well, he believed himself to be the greatest being in all existence, and he was mostly correct according to story, except for this one being who created him, which would have been God. And so, Lucifer supposedly, and this is a story that Dante will retell in the Paradiso, took one-third of the heavenly host of angels and led them to perdition against the heavenly host of God, led by the archangel Michael. And this is also how it will be told in Milton's Paradise Lost. Mike, Michael and the two-thirds of angels defeat and cast down Lucifer, and he goes down all the way into, well, what we know as the Inferno in Dante. And the idea behind him, which is the idea similar to Achilleus from the Iliad, seems to be that even if you have every gift in the world and are amongst the greatest of your kind, whether it be human or angel, can you still lose it all? Can you still fail? Are you still in some way not as perfect as the concept of perfection? The idea, obviously, is yes. Yes, 
And I think that that's an important thing to keep in mind, especially if you happen to be a human, not an angel. The fact that you are mortal, that you do degenerate because you were born, is an important thing to keep in mind. Because when you understand that you are part of a chain, not only in space, you know, with your state and nation, but also in time with all your ancestors, do you understand the purpose of existence, for example? Because it is only when you believe you are perfect, alone, responsible for yourself and no one other, that you start to act in an antisocial way, I would say. Um, and that seems to be particularly the problem of the figure of, say, Lucifer. That though he could have done the most good with all the gifts he had, he did the least amount. He did the most harm. And it's a very similar story with Achilleus from the Iliad last year. Even though he had the greatest capacity to help his own people, he ends up, A, not defeating the Trojans, and B, because of his own childish wishes, getting his own best friend killed. And so, I suppose that also says there are no guarantees in this life. Okay, some other characters. Nimrod, we know Nimrod from the Tower of Babel. Niobe, uh, we know Niobe from actually last year in the Iliad, book 24. She is the, uh, the foolish woman who said that she had 14 children. Latona or Leto only had two. So, well, Leto said Apollo and um, Diana or Artemis, go get rid of her children for me so that I have more than she does. And, well, that's what happened. Her pride led to her, her pride in what she had led to her losing what she had. I think that's a good way of looking at that. Arachne, she has a very nasty story. Uh, in fact, Arachnid, spiders are named for her. She was a weaver, and she challenged Minerva or Athena to a, a uh, weaving contest. And by some accounts, at least in the Ovidian account, in Ovid's Metamorphoses, she wins. She sort of wins. She, she makes a tapestry full of the gods doing terrible things like trying to abduct women. And that makes Athena so angry at her that um, Athena boxes her on the ears. And it, it hurts so badly that Arachne then hangs herself. And then Athena says, hang forever, and turns her into a spider. So when you see a spider, perhaps instead of just feeling fear, you could feel some pity, symbolically. All right, we also have some peoples. Assyrians, those are the Babylonians. Those are the people that conquered and defeated the Jewish people in the BC times, I think twice. And um, also where the first mythological accounts that we have come from, those of uh, the Mesopotamians, those of Marduk and Tiamat and Apsu, as well as our first ever epic, the Epic of Gilgamesh, which is, uh, I think we still have it in Sumerian and uh, uh, Assyrian as well. That's the Babylonian language. Um, maybe actually Akkadian is their language, I believe. Perhaps we have it in that language. I think an older version. I'd have to look into it. And of course also the Trojans, who never ever thought they would fall and had every reason to think they would never fall except for the devices of Ulysses who came after them. Apparently the idea we're getting over and over and over and over and over again here. Peoples, Towers of Babel, ultimate mythological beings, no matter how great you are, no matter how powerful you are, can it all disappear? And that's what we're supposed to keep in mind on this wonderful terrace. All right, I just want to go very quickly through these three men that we meet here. Uh, I don't need you to know them very, very well. So one is named Umberto Altobrandeschi, and he laments, and these, uh, each of these men is going to represent a different sort of pride that one can have. Laments the arrogance that was common in his family. So he has family pride. He's like 
the sort of kid you might know whose dad owns a car dealership and gets a really nice car when he's 16 is like, yo, look at my really nice car. And you might think this thought to yourself, that is a nice car. You must be really happy that your dad is so successful <laughs> uh, because his success is what you have been riding on your entire life or something like that. And that's what Umberto is all about. He came from powerful Ghibellines who controlled uh, territory in the coastal region of Tuscany. All you really need to know for me is that he had, he's proud of his family. Uh, Odorisi da Gubbio. He was a talented miniaturist and illuminator. Miniaturist is somebody that makes little mini carvings of things. And an illuminator is somebody that makes very beautiful pictures on medieval codices or manuscripts. So if you ever seen one of those books that has a really stylized first letter on the first chapter, like a big L with a picture around it, that is an illuminated uh, picture. That is an illuminated manuscript. And I think the very idea of illumination is very interesting because it seems to suggest that the pictures you draw based on the words are in some way representative of the illumination you have received from the meaning of the words that you then represent in art. Which is a magical thing that only humans can do. Read some crazy looking symbols, develop some images in their minds to, uh, based on those, and then articulate those symbols in art. Very bizarre behavior. You do not see many rhinos or dogs doing that sort of thing. All right, something else about Odorisi. He worked for Pope Boniface VIII, but we won't hold that against him. All right, the last person, the person you need to know best. His name is Provenzon Salvani. And so uh, Odorisi, he was proud of his work. Obviously, he had the highest possible office that you can have as an artist, working for the Pope, who was one of the biggest figures uh, besides, say, the emperor, or depending on who you listen to, either the emperor or the Pope of that day. And so Provenzon Salvani, he was a prominent Ghibelline general. And again, we notice multiple Ghibellines here in purgatory. Ghibellines, not Guelphs. Remember that Dante was a Guelph, a white Guelph himself. So by rights, he should have a prejudice against these Ghibellines. And yet, he puts them in heaven, indicating that he has something of a balanced perspective at this point, as if there is something more important than politics, which is obviously true. Uh, because most people, most of the time, don't spend their time dealing with politics. They deal with the problems in their own lives. Uh, Provenzano Salvani was a prominent Ghibelline general from Siena who helped to lead his forces to victory over the Florentine Guelphs at Monteperti in 1260. He emphasizes pride of place or position. He's a general. He has a, a very high rank. When he says to do things, people do them. People will die on his command. And... Well, he's very successful, too. He's victorious. And imagine that. You're a general who's victorious over another people. How do you feel? Very humble or very proud in that moment? Extremely proud. You feel like you're on top of the world. Will you stay there? Absolutely not. Absolutely not. In fact, he wanted to destroy Florence after, and this is something I really wanted to tell you. So you remember Farinata from hell, and you remember that he was very arrogant and proud and asked Dante, who are your people? And he was a Ghibelline, and Dante was a Guelph, and we were just learning about that distinction then. So we are like, ooh, Ghibelline, we don't like you, we're Guelphs. But there's something about Farinata that, even though he's arrogant, even though he's in hell, there's something noble about him. Well, this is where we get that nobility from. Even though he was one of the Ghibellines, when Provenzano Salvani sacked Florence, Farinata argued to keep it 
from being burned to the ground and destroyed and was successful. And so, even though in hell, even though of Ghibelline and not Guelph persuasion, Farinata did something that Dante is very thankful for and suddenly the Florentines are very thankful for. All right. Uh, and just to show you how uh, <laughs> fate can take a turn, later he had his head severed and shown above the walls of Florence as fulfillment of a prophecy. So that's a, that tells you something also about how the Florentines treat uh, uh, treat those who would conquer them. Um, this is Provenzon, not Farinata, that I'm talking about here. So not he he does have a victory in war, but eventually has his head severed and held above the people. Sort of like what happened to Cicero when he had his head put on a spike in front of the rostrum uh, where, during the uh, upsurge of power for Augustus Caesar. All right, and he, like we saw with Manfred made it into purgatory, or excuse me, like we saw in Buonconte, uh, made it into purgatory by a single humble act. He literally begged his fellow citizens for ransom money to win the life of an imprisoned friend. So a very interesting sort of dual life and perhaps representative of something like a human life. That when he needed the money to ransom a friend, he begged others. And because of that begging, even though he had been very proud, was going to lose his head later, which is also an indication of uh, being proud, having your head cut off as if your, your head was no good to you. <laughs> uh, well, he does make it into purgatory because he shows the full range of human emotions. He shows a certain amount of recognition of, uh, I don't know, his fundamental equality with others. It's hard to say exactly what it means when you do humble yourself. It's as if you place yourself beneath others and put yourself... Uh, subject to their will because you have faith that they will give you what is right. Um, yes, that strikes me as a strong definition. All right, let's talk about envy. And we have a couple of images up here immediately. The first thing we notice when we look at all three of these images is there are people in cloaks sitting shoulder to shoulder, sitting around, sitting around, sitting around, sort of cowering together. Well, the reason they're cowering together, especially if you look at this image of the spiral going up the mountain, is it, well, there's not much of a barrier on the edge. So if you couldn't see very well, you'd be really nervous about doing what? Falling off, Falling off the edge. And, which is very interesting, given that envy is right above pride. Because the, one of the most famous quotes about pride is, pride cometh before the fall. So it's almost as if those who are proud are at the bottom of the mountain precisely because they have what? Fallen. Exactly right, exactly right. And it's almost as if, and this is an interesting thing, Dante does seem to believe that pride is the foundation of all sin, but that envy, which is also not included in its own specific circle in the Inferno, also has a place in the foundation of all sin. Well, why would that be? Well, it's for the same reason that these souls are all huddled together. They're huddled together, not wanting to fall off the edge. That's probably because they can't see very well. Well, here's their punishment. The envious crowd together with iron wire sewing shut their eyes. Iron wire. That's very interesting for several reasons. So it means that they are effectively blind here. And in fact, we hear that, that uh, tears are escaping out from between the threads of iron. First thing is, who sewed their eyes shut? And the answer is most likely, if they are purging their own sins within purgatory, 
that who must have shut their eyes during life? Themselves. Very good. Very good, very good. And with iron, too. It's as if, it's as if life calls out for you to see it, and you must force yourself not to see it for what it is in this conception, that what's natural is just to open your eyes. What seems to be uh, unnatural and subject to artifice is putting iron wire in your eyes and closing them. It's as if it's a very unnatural thing to feel envy. And so, well, what is envy exactly? Well, we know from Latin, the word envy comes from invidia, which is invideo, which means not seen. So it literally means not being able to see. But Dante's definition, I think, is a very good one. It sounds a lot like the word we use, resentment. And so we meet our first person, Sapia, and she, she illustrates for us the idea of envy, the essence of envy. Basically, it's this. Hating when other people have good things happen to them or receive good things or do good things and loving it when bad things happen to them. Uh, there's a German word uh, with a very similar meaning to this. It's called schadenfreude. Uh, I think it means uh, literally hate of joy or something like that. Freude means joy, uh, which is a funny thing about Sigmund Freud. Uh, if you ever study that psychoanalysis, his name meaning joy. Uh, <laughs> but yeah, it seems to be hating the good for others and loving when they feel harm. Huh. And, well... Here's her story, just very slightly, just to show how nasty and ugly envy and emotion, as an emotion can be. So envious was she of all those around her, of her own people, the Sienese, that when they were defeated at Cola di Valdelsa, or Colia di Valdelsa, she rejoiced, even though her own nephew was killed in the battle, and her nephew happened to be Provenzano Salvani from the proud. So, it's almost as if what envy does is turns you against those who should be your own in-group. As if you look to them, think they have something that you deserve, and then assume that you should have had it in the first place. And perhaps the reason why that is not seen is because one is not understanding that each human isomorphically walks a very similar path. If someone has something you don't have, perhaps they also lack something that you have. Something has some, if somebody has something you don't have, perhaps also they've done something that you have not done in order to acquire it. Perhaps the greatest truth in life, or the greatest ability to see, would be to see why everything is as it is and that is correct. And perhaps since that's so difficult to do, this is just sort of a cognitive distortion. It's just a lazy way of thinking, being envious. I wish I had this instead of what I do have. It's like, well, you seem to be wanting to change the structure of reality because since you don't have that, you do not have it right now. If you really want it, maybe you should work towards it. All right, good. And then she makes a funny uh, comment, this sapia, based on her name. The, the word sapia, like the word sapio in Italian, which means knowledge, comes from the Latin word sapiens. We are, of course, homo sapiens as a species. Homo sapiens, sapiens technically. Sapiens means wise. And so your Latin name as a species is wise man. And, well, sapia says, even though my name was sapia, I was not very wise. 
which is interesting because apparently envy then is somewhat of the opposite of wisdom. It's as if wisdom is being able to see things as they are, whereas envy is precisely the state in which you see things as they are not. Good. Examples of love and envy. Now, so these are very interesting. And I think I'll end with these today, just with the examples of love. Rather than having sculptures beneath our feet or raising our perspective uh, above our eyes, we now have disembodied voices scream out these examples at us. It's very odd. And uh, apparently as loud as like a thunderclap. And so the first one, the first example of love, and apparently love is the specific virtue which expiates envy. And so it's almost as if you replace a bad habit with a good habit. And actually we have good neuroscience proving that that's true. That when you develop bad habits, the neural pathways that you develop during those bad habits never go away. Which is why you don't want to develop bad habits in the first place, especially something like a terrible drug addiction. They never go away. In fact, if they did, it wouldn't be hard to regress to bad habits, and yet it is the easiest thing in the world to do that. Well, the idea in purgatory, which we now know is literally exactly empirically correct, is if you want to expiate a bad habit, you have to build a stronger good habit to replace it. And so if you are envious, if you stare about at others, casting your green gaze at them, thinking about all the things they have that you don't have, well, the way to get rid of that seems to be through love. And of course, this is Dante's conception of love, which is an idea of charity, which means suffering for what you love or taking responsibility for what you love. And so the first idea the first example is, again, another Christian one involving Mary, Queen of Heaven. And a very famous Latin phrase uh, from a wedding in the New Testament is vinum non habunt. It's from the Vulgate, from the Latin translation. It means they have not wine. And so, well, this random guy who is called Jesus, who's walking through, said they don't have wine, and it's told by his mother. So he makes a whole bunch of wine. He turns this water. There are some amount of barrels of it, it's three to six, something like that. And he says, look at the barrels, and they're like, it's water. And he says, look at the barrels, and then they're wine. It took me a long time to understand what that story meant. But it's very similar to the story about the Sermon on the Mount and the giving of fish. It means this. Remember this. Water is that which purifies you. Wine is that which intoxicates you. So water is like that which Apollo might give you, clarifying God of light. Wine is like that which Dionysus, god of frenzy, might give you. It's almost as if what is most intoxicating is sharing something intangible with people and becoming one group from being multiple groups. And the greatest way to bind people together in a group, which we understand from the major world religions and the major nation states, is not based on your blood or your race or even your language, but your shared sets of beliefs. You might say, Mr. Schmidt, that makes no sense. And I would say it makes perfect sense because every world religion has a set of texts which people read in order to understand their beliefs and the action patterns they must embody in order to be a part of that. And it's the same with nations. Do we have a text that gives us a bunch of beliefs that we are required to act on in order to be Americans that we have in front of us every day of our lives? What is it called? The Constitution. That's exactly right, the Constitution. And this seems to be a story about how, well, it is the spread of information 
throughout the minds of humans that then affects and changes their behavior in order to become uniform with each other, which forms the greatest connection between people. And that when you share willingly that information with people, that that is an act of love. You're giving something of yourself to them with the only reason for having done that in order to make them better and to make you all stronger. That, it, that strikes me as helping everybody, actually. And perhaps that's the idea behind love, that it helps everybody. I wonder. We'll have to think about that. Dante will have quite a bit to say on that. All right, the second example we have, Greco-Roman, pagan, Orestes. We know about Orestes. We remember him from the Odyssey. He was the son of Agamemnon, and we liked him a whole lot more than Agamemnon. We liked him for two reasons. One reason is he's nothing like Agamemnon. Second reason is, and perhaps you remember this, he killed, very famously, Neoptolemus, the son of Achilleus. So it's very funny that Agamemnon and Achilleus, who hated each other uh, for a time, at least, perhaps longer than a time, Achilleus looked down on Agamemnon for being weaker than he was, and yet it's Agamemnon's son who will kill Achilleus' son. And again, just, again, that pride element. What happens at one time will to somebody else will probably at some other time happen to you. And just as we know from the fall of Troy, which looks like an Achaean win, which eventually led to the fall of Mycenae, Argos, and Phthia, uh, to the Romans. So the Trojans being related to the Romans, descended, or the Trojans being the ancestors of the Romans, then eventually get their revenge. Very interesting how that sort of thing happens. So I am Orestes. So this is a story just like Spartacus, if you've ever uh, studied or seen that. I think there's a Netflix show about it now. Well, Orestes... He kills his mother, Clytemestra, because she had killed his father, the king of Argos, or Mycenae, excuse me, uh, Agamemnon. He's then brought to trial, at least in this account, and a man asks, who here is Orestes? And he had grown up with a great friend named Pylades, and his friend, wishing to take his place for him, and I think there's a much, uh, uh, there's a very strong example of sacrifice here, says, I am Orestes, tries to take his place. But then Orestes so loves his friend that he stands up and says, I am Orestes. And so the, the judge or people in front of them wishing to kill Orestes see this dual act of charity. One man trying to die for another because he loves him so, and the other refusing to let him die for him because he loves him so. I don't know how this story actually ends. I think they're both let off. That would be very sweet, but I'd have to look it up. I'd have to look it up. All right, and then we get a third example. And this third example comes from a very famous part of the New Testament called the Sermon on the Mount. And just symbolically, you might want to understand that whenever a character is on a mountain, a mountain is above a plane, that means they are speaking from a place of higher what? Higher understanding. A slightly better way of saying that is higher perspective. And so they are sharing a higher perspective with people. You can see this in the Old Testament. Moses coming down from the mount. You can see this in Greco-Roman literature with Zeus. Where is it that Zeus hangs out? On a mountain called Mount Ida and sometimes on Mount Olympus. Yes, whenever somebody speaks from a mountain, they embody a higher perspective. And so the quote we get is, love those who despitefully use you. That's our kind of poor translation uh, from our book. But love those who harm you. And this is a uh, it's sort of a gnarly thing to hear. Love those who harm you. Generally, we love those who harm us or help us. Help us, of course. Much easier to love those sorts of people. 
Well, it's taken from a fuller quote called that says, Love your enemies, do good to them that hate you, and pray for them that persecute and calumniate you. It seems to make no sense. It's sort of like that expression you've heard that if someone strikes you on the cheek, turn your cheek and let them strike the other. You're like, that makes no sense. Someone strikes me on the cheek, I want to punch them in the face and make sure they don't strike me on the cheek again. That's how we mostly feel, right? Of course, of course. And if someone hates you and is always talking smack on you, you're going to love that about them or try and crush them? Make a nasty little uh, Instagram hashtag with their name in it or something like that, right? And, uh, well, what does this mean exactly? I think it means this. When somebody hates you or dislikes you or talks smack about you, perhaps they have something to say about you that is true, even if hurtful and painful. And perhaps it is those people that are critical of you, that do not like you, that do not feel responsible for you, that are more willing than even your friends to tell you something true about yourself. And perhaps those who tell you something true about yourself that you do not like, well, are they helpful or simply hurtful? They intend to hurt, but you can turn their criticism into something that helps you. Isn't that right? Because if they're telling you something about you, is that useful information? Yes, especially if it's the sort of thing about you that you don't like to look at and that those who are kind and gentle with you would never say. I have to say, as a teacher, that's sort of a funny line to, to, to walk along balance. Most of the time, I'm very kind and gentle with my students. Obviously, I love you all very much. Sure, of course. That said, do I have to be very critical of you at times in order to develop skills in you and character habits? Of course, of course. It's the same way whenever you have any authority figure, and it probably it's the same way whenever you have a genuine relationship with anybody. Probably when you have a husband or a wife, you'll have to have some hard conversations with them about things either you are doing or they are doing which are not working and will not lead to good outcomes. Um, you certainly know that if you've ever had a coach, they are going to sit you down if your attitude isn't quite right or if you just keep making the same mistake. And they're going to talk about how you're hurting the team. If you have a teacher, a really good teacher, probably someone much better than me, and you know you just keep coming to class, you look tired three days in a row, you're not paying attention, you're acting out in some way, they're going to talk to you and say, listen, Hurt in the classroom environment. What's going on with you right now? We need to get you back on board. And so I do actually think that this is useful but hard advice to take from Dante. If somebody hates you and they do everything they can to destroy you, perhaps that which they hate in you is real. Perhaps it's something you, you could work on. Even though that is, I would say, not my natural tendency if somebody uh, dislikes me. The first thing I have course imagine is I want to destroy this person how dare they hate me what how do they not see the great things about me it's like well maybe they do or maybe they see the other parts about you as well and that's something well worth keeping in mind I think all right we'll talk about Guido del Duca and Rinieri da Cavoli when we come back from Thanksgiving um